Hello and welcome to Minter Dialogue, episode number 515. My name is Minter Dial and I'm your host for this podcast, a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. For more information or to check out other shows on the network, please go ahead and visit evergreenpodcast.com. So this week's interview is with Tom Dennis. Tom is the CEO of Serenity in Leadership. Former Marine, he's also a facilitator, speaker, consultant, educator, and change agent. In this conversation with Tom, we discuss his experience as an officer in the Royal Marines, his work on creating culture change in business, crafting an organization's purpose, and the necessary qualities for successful leaders today. You'll find all the show notes on minterdial.com. And if you have a moment, go ahead and drop in a rating and review. And certainly don't forget to subscribe to catch all the future episodes. Now for the show. Tom Dennis, lovely to have you on my show. I met you through our mutual friend, Anita Novak. And um, and I got interested in what your profile is. And in fact, one of the, the podcasting services says, you must interview this chap, Tom Dennis. And I go, I know him. Let's do it. So you are the CEO of Serenity and Leadership. You're also an ex-Marine. Uh, and um, I would love for you in your own words, Tom, to describe who is Tom Dennis. Ah, so I'm a... I'm a guy with a lot of passion, um, and uh, I, I suppose that I, whatever I've done in my life, I've I've applied that that passion, not necessarily usefully, not necessarily productively, but, but with passion. Um, so uh, I, I want to bring about some positive change in the world. And I've done that in whatever job I've done. Um, I've tried to bring that about. Um, when I worked in the MOD many, many moons ago, um, I think I was uh, I, the, the first with an optical character reader because I could see that all these secretaries just typing out huge manuals. There was there were better ways to do it. I was one of the first to have one of those huge brick telephones. Uh, and indeed, a PC. Yeah. Um, I had a, this amazing luggable Toshiba. So um, yeah, it, it, one analogy I quite like is skiing in virgin snow. Um, nice. So I, 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 I've, I've, I've not often chosen easy routes for myself. Um, and uh, now I'm. I really want to bring a, a, about some some changes in the way that organisations are run, um, and make them make organisations safer for people to work in. And I'm not talking about health and safety there. I'm I'm talking about people actually, particularly women, but also other. Um, what one, had, had, I think. There's this mo misnomer of of um, minority groups. I don't like it. Um, it. It's a sort of separating term, but it, it's it's. Uh, the, I, I love Gabor Mate's book, The Myth of Normal, his his latest book, and I think uh, although I go in a slightly different direction with a lot of, I'm not disagreeing with anything he says, but I take that title slightly differently. There is a myth of normal. And it's the majority that creates the definition of normal. And that's all wrong. That's all wrong because it, it is it is immediately and by definition exclusive. So I want to help people be themselves and not feel excluded. I want to go back to the first word you employed that struck for me was passion. Where do you think that passion comes from? Is it something that people have innately or must develop or can develop? Well, I think that, uh, you know, I think you're familiar with the, the concept of, of of constellations, family and organizational constellations. Yes. And I, I, I think that, 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 that takes me to the, the thinking that you know there's people talk about nature and nurture but i think there's a third piece in there which is what we bring from our systems our family systems uh 
And so where does my passion come from? I think a lot of this is actually systemic. Uh, and I, I've never actually constellated it. But if I think of my upbringing, I, I'm not sure that there are places there where I can see a generation of of passion. When I was at boarding school, I, I had a need to stand out, which actually was incredibly painful. But I had that need, uh, and it led me into all sorts of difficult situations. But I, but 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 you know, if there's a root of passion in there. It was already flowering, in a sense. So, I don't know is the short answer mm. to your question. Mm. <laughs> and and this um, notion of of the need to stand out. And then you you talk about, I didn't always take the easy path. Do you regret that? Well, it's made me who I am, um, and I don't I don't regret that. I've had um, a life of ups and downs, um, I guess, like everybody. Um, and some of the downs have been extremely painful and some of the ups have been amazing. Uh, I wouldn't want to have a kind of flat line life. Um, but I think like, like, like most people um, with passion, their life experiences take them to a place where they are are armed through their bruises and their wounds to do things um, when they're, they're older, um, and so yes, that those I, I I wouldn't I wouldn't be who I am, and I wouldn't have the ideas and the thoughts and the the wish to change certain things if I hadn't had that bumpy life. Mm. Well, I, I excerpted out of that a line you meant or you said, which is the flat line life. I mean, a flat line, that doesn't sound like much living, does it? If you're a doctor anyway. And I feel like when you talk about this notion of safety, I wonder where you position us in, in a world where if we have too much safety, we'll have no bumps. That's right. And I, I think we are in danger of, of um, certainly from a health point of view, bringing up generations of children who are not armed to handle some of the things that nature will throw at them. Um, you know, I, I remember as a kid, and I remember, actually, when I was in, in France once, I, I, there was a, a son of uh, a cousin of mine, and we found him um, picking off um snails off the vines and stuffing them in his mouth and they were very small snails and he had hundreds in his mouth this escargot yes but it, it's like that's healthy dirt but we 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 live in a world where there, there's there's so much uh cleaning that uh i think we 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 disarm ourselves and our children so um in in the same way i think going going through life and avoiding any experience that tests one or stretches one um you know i i suppose the, the another analogy is is going to the gym when you uh, operate your muscles when you ex you, you 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 push them they get stronger so um, you know, and I, I think actually the pandemic, one of the greatest harms of the pandemic was that lack of exercise, both both literally and also I think for many people uh, um, emotionally, perhaps uh, and 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 me mentally. Well, at least socially, because we're all isolated. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, yes. And we were taken into difficult places, a, a, a lot of us. It was a so, very uneven experience socially. Of course. I, I want to, uh, there's a bunch of things I want to get into, but I just want to start with a, uh, your LinkedIn profile has horses in the background. Why horses? Uh, well, that was part of my adventure. I, um, 
in 2009, I went to the States. Um, actually, because, well, I, I what I was seeking was wilderness. I wanted to, I wanted to really experience what wilderness was like. Uh, and there isn't very much in this country. Um, and, the plains, of, the plains uh, of Wyoming don't exist in Shropshire. <laughs> yes, well, you know the Four Corners when you go to New Mexico and um, Arizona around around there, and the Grand Canyon. These these places are amazing. Um, so, my horses. Well, um, this was all to do with constellations, and I used to constellate in in organizations uh, um to a degree not not sort of full time but um i went to a um a a, a, I don't know, a, a large a week long workshop on constellations in holland and i saw one person constellating using a horse rather than a group of people and it was amazing uh, and so when somebody asked me in one of my large clients in houston they said um we want something different on our offsite when we're bringing people from all over the world together. And I said, I know the very thing. And I looked for a horse person in Houston. I was sure there was, there was going to be one. And I well, found sure. <laughs> they have a great and, polo. They have great polo in Houston. Yeah. This is, these, these are horses. These are working horses uh, working in, in, in the sense of helping veterans helping um uh, uh, autistic children um and i went to this therapist and her horsewoman and said um can we can we work organizationally and they said well, i guess so and so i took my constellation knowledge and actually what i found very quickly was that the horsewoman was constellating she just hadn't linked the hellinger work with um, what she was doing, which was amazing, because um, young women in a in a residential facility who were there um, because of behavioural problems, largely related to drink and drugs and addiction, and the horses were working miracles with these 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 girls. And um, as one of the girls said, you know, I, I've worked with therapists all my life, but it, it's the horse horse that makes a difference to me. And so seeing the horses relating to these people uh in in truly amazing gobsmacking ways um led me to actually form a relationship with the horsewoman and we ended up with a herd of 14 horses uh living on a ranch so the horses played a very very large part in my in my life and that picture was of me sitting there with i think about eight you can't quite see them all but there was about eight horses who just had surrounded me and and were being with me i mean uh if ever one was said that you know we should be more and do less that was a moment in my life lovely i have had a uh, lovely friend of mine called hervé franceschi uh we had on my french podcast and we talked about the the amazing things we can learn from animals and if we let ourselves get into that animalistic side of ourselves, which we tend to sort of brush off with ties and culture, civilization and all that. So um, beautiful story, Tom. Thank you for sharing. Um, I want to get into the, the the first major piece for me, which is about the Royal Marines. You served as an officer in the Royal Marines for 17 years. That is one bulk of a time. I mean, I was I would imagine that at some point you were thinking this is my total career for the rest of my life. Uh, what was what did you take away from your experience in the Royal Marines? I think the, the Royal Marines attracts a, a, a quite a wide group of people. Um, I, I mean, today they are passionately fit. I wasn't particularly fit in those days. I mean, I wasn't bad, but I, I wouldn't get in today with the fitness I had then. Mm -hmm. um, because at the now, edge yeah i mean poof. um so it, it attracts different people and i think what joins them all is a, a kind of maverick um mindset i you know i remember going through training um i don't know whether i should say this but i you know I mean, 
it, it, we were encouraged to cheat at exams, but only understanding that if we were caught, we'd be thrown out. And it, it sort of developed developed this mindset of uh, what what have you got to do if you're working behind enemy lines? Um, and uh, you, you know, if you look at ex-Marines, they are all over the place in all sorts of of organisations. Um, and you know, you, there's there's one who's he was in Afghanistan. He lost both legs and one arm, and he's he's raising money for charity running with his prosthetics and you know there's there's a, there are examples of determination and resilience like it's just utterly amazing utterly amazing um and so uh I, I i don't see myself as a shining example of that um i feel very humble in in the presence of some of the the people that i've i've worked with um and interestingly, I'm I'm just creating a new leadership program, and uh, I've got come together with a with a, an ex special forces um, Royal Marine um, who's not long out of the corps, and I, his professionalism and his cheerful determination um, is something that I love to be around because it reminds me of being in the corps and 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 seeing all these consummate professionals um doing amazing work so i'm very proud i suppose is one thing i take away from that um but i that there are many people whose footsteps i do not feel worthy to to, to tread in but i have seen great leadership uh and my first commanding officer when I was an adjutant um uh, Andrew Whitehead I, I you know I, I've seen leadership but that man was just amazing mm. amazing um and and you know it's when you have role models like that it, it like it, it's it, it encourages you to to be your best hello this is Gary Chahot welcoming you to check out the French history podcast our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present. If you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, we are exactly that. We also host world-renowned scholars who have delivered guest episodes on their specialties, including 18th century pirates, revolutionary booksellers in 20th century Paris, the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today. So two, two comments and a question. The first is, uh, I, I was noting down as I listened to you about cheating on exams, I, I was thinking of the term responsible deviance. <laughs> If that's possible, some sort of paradox in there. And I wanted to cite a, a chap I've met, I can't call a friend, but I've met him a couple of times called Giles Dooley. So he's a photographer who lost two legs and an arm and uh, decided that, well, that's not enough. I can go back and and goes back and is still a photographer with with missing one arm and two legs. So there are some remarkable peer people out there that just blow us away and and, and remind us that Really, if we put our mind to it, we can overcome so much more. So the question, though, regards as Mr. Whitehead, what was so remarkable about his leadership? I never heard him bark at anybody. Uh, I supported him, you know, as his adjutant with all disciplinary um, uh, processes. And he was firm but fair across the board. Um he, I wasn't with him in that, but he led one of the commandos in uh, the Falklands. And um, the stories from some of my good friends who were serving with him there um, are, are just amazing. He, he, he made amazing decisions. He had extraordinary patience. Um, and... Um, 
was very hum he, he he had great humility and i think that's one of the beautiful things about great leaders is in in my view they have humility so they don't shout about themselves and they don't need people to give them great accolades they are who they are and that's good enough and they don't even need to shout at you. They, as you said, they, he didn't bark. the The words "firm" but "fair" are absolutely three words that um, I, I write "firm" and "fair," but um, <clears throat> in my book about leadership, and I think it's a great way to be. So, thank you for that. And now, I want to get onto one piece of your work at Phoenix Obsidian, where you worked for nearly twenty nine years, culture changing at various companies. Uh, and you mentioned you did three and a half years at a medium-sized French pharmaceutical company. Hmm. I was wondering, um, how does culture change happen differently in a French company versus perhaps an Anglo-Saxon company in your experience? Is there a difference? And then how did you go about making that happen? Because as you know, I worked for a French company, a little larger than medium-sized um, cosmetics company, L'Oréal, for 16 years. So I was, I'm deep in the wool in Frenchness. I think, I mean, uh, okay, this is this is my view. I think the French university system produces leaders who have particular traits. And unless a French leader has served abroad and been either anglicized or something else sized um, over and above French, the Francophone um, attitudes, um, I'm being obtuse here, sorry. I, I think with, with the university system, um, that, that people, people are treated very badly and they're, they're, uh, they're put down a great deal. And I think that's a, a leadership trait that people take away with them. And uh, it's not very nice. Uh, now the the, um, the the organization that I went in, it, I mean, it, it was a. I, I was working in a pharmaceutical, and one of the uh, members in the C-suite there in Paris had dinner with an old schoolmate, who it turns out had just been put in charge of this medium-sized pharmaceutical, uh, and he the new CEO um, was saying, I, I don't know what to do here because uh, it, it, my leadership team is so fixed and stuck in old ways. Uh, I don't know how to change them, but I've got to change them. I know that. So at this dinner, the two of them, the, the one I'd been working with said, hey, look, talk to Tom Dennis. He may be able to help you because he's certainly helping us. And so um, I met this chap, um, and it, what he described was all his uh, team had been there for 20 years or more, apart from one who'd been there 10 years. And he was regarded as sort of the new boy. Uh, and uh, I think, and I've come across this in a number of organizations, a new leader comes in and says, how am I going to get into this? How can I change them? Uh, because clearly... There was an awful lot of change needed. They were the the team were very autocratic, uh, and actually, uh, there was sort of seventeenth century in, in 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 the way they were running the organization. So I had a colleague, a French colleague, um, who I loved working with. I mean, I haven't worked with her for a while, but um, she had devised a system. Um, which was sort of rooted in NLP, but also the the masks of the Comedia dell'arte. Mm. And one of the things that she had found is that when you, whoever you are, whatever character you are, if you're told the character of a mask and you put the mask on, somehow it allows you to be that character, even if you're completely not that character without the mask on. It's it's fascinating how just covering your face with a with a, um, a, a you know a, we, we use proper leather masks. We, but if you've been told what the character that person that mask is, you take it on. Uh, it's very easy. And so what we did was to break down 
the 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 ice that surrounded them all um and also began to explain to them which mask they naturally wore and uh, i think we used seven seven uh, masks and um I, I mean, cut a long story short, we 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 worked with the, the, the them and then cascaded the work, not so much using the masks because it was just too complicated, but but uh, with as the committee that the action started to open up, it created channels into the rest of the organization that we could work with. And um, the the denouement, the 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 the, the sort of the, the peak of it all was when we ran an offsite for their uh, salespeople who were um, brought in from all over the front, uh, the, the country. These were people who interacted with doctors and sold the, the the drugs. We brought them into a hotel in Cannes for two days, and. Uh, the committee the direction which had been absolutely distant from everybody else did a skit they actually we we created a um, uh, a stage and they did a skit and they made absolute fools of themselves in a good way autodirision wow and it, it, I mean, what it did was transform the view of everybody of these people who they'd seen as monsters and ex extremely unpleasant people um, because they were prepared to make a fool of themselves and um, be okay about it. And that, you know, takes one into a whole conversation about vulnerability and the power of it and all that stuff. <clears throat> but it was transformative. Um and uh, we used Lego as well um, during that that offsite, and had people building things. And Serious they, they were just doing things that they'd never done before. Well, I'm not trained in Lego um, serious play, but uh, you know, I I I I was sufficiently adventurous. I just gave them a bunch of Lego things and got them to to to, to make things, and it was great. Well, it, it brings out the it brings out the child, right? Precisely. So um, you were talking about masks, and uh, Tom, and it, it reminded me, well, it, it makes me think of, in any event, the idea that we have little stories that we have in our mind, and, and how we are marked and moved by stories. So when you uh, don a mask, at some level, it's like, this is the little story I have about me. And uh, it's, it shows to what extent and how quickly we will adopt new thoughts and beliefs based on the stories that we tell ourselves. Yeah, I, I think they, they were so surprised at who they appeared to, who they, they revealed of themselves. And that's a good thing. Oh, you, you wrote an article, which I enjoyed. It says, uh, we've always worn masks. And then it, it, the second subtitle is, well, how COVID-19 has further shaped them. I tend to fully agree with you, of course, that we always have masks. Masks are probably at some level absolutely necessary to get through life. For example, you can't be the naked husband going outside to take a bus. You have to be a clothed husband or, you know, whatever, man going outside to take uh, the bus. So you, you are putting on clothes and clothes are, if nothing else, a mask of sorts you know, representing I wear Gucci, you wear Prada or whatever. And and so I, I'm not afraid to say we must have masks. We must not bring our total private, sometimes naughty selves to work. So that means we are going to distance ourselves. What's your take? How interesting. How interesting. I, you know, we, we talked at the beginning about... I had a need to stand out, and I, 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 one of the ways I did that was to persuade my mother to to give me um, suits, which were outlandish. So I was standing out, and people didn't like it. And going back to that thing about the, the the definition of normal, but I, 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 I you know, what we're getting into this is this need to conform in order to to be accepted in order to to be able to belong 
And uh, I wish we could belong because of who we are, not because we have to dress or wear masks in a certain way. Um, you know, if <laughs> your your example of going naked to the bus stop is a little difficult to follow. I mean, to to to, to build on because it's it's so so extreme in a way. Um, but uh, you, you know, it's very interesting that since the, the pandemic, you don't see many people wearing a tie anymore. Um, men, um, the the the, the um, ties have 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 gone out of fashion in a, a lot of ways. Um, you look at. Uh, it's always struck me that you know I was in the military in the old days. Um, um, people of a certain class, as they as they left school or whatever, they uh, they went to university. But essentially, they joined the clergy, they joined the military, or they went into the law or accountancy. And each of those has its own uniform. And um, so, I, I when I worked in the the city a lot, you know, I used to wear the uniform of the city, and so it made me sort of fit in but i'm there's a there's a there's a maverick side of me that says the hell with that i i wish actually i'd had the the courage to go in not conforming at all and maybe nobody would have wanted to see me or not i don't know <laughs> well it's a it's a certainly a, a common thread in what i like to talk about which is this need to belong have a community uh, and yet need to stand out even within that community and there are issues like diversity. So like-minded and diverse. Oh, well, that's mm. kind of oxymoronic because if we're all the same-minded, well, then we're not really very neurodiverse. So it's a paradox that we must live with. In, and I find it's the numero uno paradox, which is this need to belong and yet be different. So you, you want to belong to a group, you wear the uniform, but then within the uniform, you can express yourself differently. But in that path, you must accede to what is the community's situation, their context, their values. Once you sort of pass muster into that, then you should be allowed to, with certain boundaries all the same, be, be you within that. Or the alternative is you're a misfit and you are told you have to fit in to this code, like you at boarding school, perhaps. And then you, you you didn't really accede to the code of the school at the beginning. Your parents put you in there. You were a misfit. You wanted to come out. And, and that's the cost. So the, it, the challenge is, do you, do you go in accepting the community and then be different or be different and then try to find a community? Yes. And I suppose that some people will do either of those you know i mean some people do one some people do the other um depends what drives you it depends you know that i saw something on the internet the other day that they're doing some experimentation um using psychedelics and and various other things and i thought oh i would love to be part of that group um come and join me but then <laughs> <laughs> uh, what, Tom, uh, let me, well, yeah let, i like that laugh um let me just uh swoop into a couple of statements you write on your site uh which was really interesting i mean it, it provoked lots of thoughts for me apart from all your writings but um i wanted to put two together which is that um the first year expense of moving an expat overseas is seven hundred thousand dollars many of whom fail and you also say that um well, actually you had three kind of failures. 82% uh, of multinational firms lose money in China. And 70% of national of international ventures that fail are due to cultural differences. And I feel like at some level, this is the subject we're talking about, which is fitting in or not, standing out or not. Because if you're the same as everybody, then no one's going to buy you. If you stand out too much, people will go after you and try to cut you down. Yes. I, I think it's 
I mean, what we're touching on here is that the, this, this we've talked about it already, that this needs to belong. And um, the, the power of the group, which tends to spit out anybody that doesn't conform to the, the group's rules, which are largely unwritten, but actually very powerful. And, uh, you know, I, I said, that's, that's why I see so many, uh, you, you know, when you, when you look at young men today, the, the facilities that they used to have in order to belong and also have healthy role models have almost been completely decimated um, because of political idiocy. Um, and we're getting the results of that. Young men still look for that, the role models. They still look to, to, for, for groups to belong to and hence gangs and uh, all the things that come from that and the, the, the moving around of drugs and, and and so on and it's it's this is the the societal results of short term decisions made by politicians who don't have any long term views well i'm going to push back just a second i think it's more of a societal issue where as a society whether you you can agree or not on on governmental policies but there are certain things that as a society we've been pushing and uh, I think that's part of the the rise of orthodox or extreme religion, where people are seeking boundaries, seeking old-fashioned re reactionary types of of values in the lack in the face of a completely fluid and and non-stable uh, type of society where anything goes. None of these things are are unidimensional. That's true. Nuance is needed. Um, and, you know, I think that's one of the difficulties we have in the world of social media where things are um, either black or white uh, and um, people can say whatever they want. It's like the, 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 the mother, the, the matriarch is not there to smack Johnny round the ears by saying, how dare you be so naughty? You would never say that if it wasn't, um, you could be uh, uh, anonymous. Um, so it's, it's, what we've lost is responsibility. We've lost that sense of responsibility, the, 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 the needs for, um, in, well, I, I suppose, Another word is community, isn't it? What we've lost is community. Yeah. Because people are held locally responsible for their behavior in communities. Mm. Um, and we've lost that. And and it's incredibly sad. I don't know if that's sort of answering where, where you went with yeah. what you said. It's just there's no right or wrong or or necessary answer. It just to to reflect on. I want to finish with one other area. I mean, you've got lots of really interesting articles that I'm going to point people to read, including how does purpose come alive in a company, which is something I'm particularly interested in, and this other topic, which is about feminine energies. So you're you're very interested in this concept of masculine and feminine energies. I studied women's studies, by the way, at university. Tom, so this is a topic I got fully in, immersed in, and you see, you, you, they wrote on on your site, or I think maybe this is on your speaker profile, that you see the feminine as being largely suppressed in both men and women in the Western corporate world, which has led to many of the problems we face today. I'd love for you to elaborate on that. Well, um. There's two sides to that. One is defining the, what, what I mean by the, the feminine, I guess, and the other one is 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 the suppression of it. I, I, as I think about that, the image I have is is Theresa May coming out of Ten Downing Street and and uh, resigning, and she uh, she cried briefly, um, and that aroused a number of of reactions one of derision and one of of 
of um, care. Uh, and the, the derision actually is the dysfunctional masculine, and the care is the functional feminine, in a sense. But what we were seeing was the feminine, which had been completely suppressed in her, in the way that she, not just as a PM, but when she was Home Secretary as well, she utterly suppressed any feminine. Um, so there was no compassion. There was no creativity. There was no care of people, actually. Um, it was all a, a, a horrible masculine that she was um, espousing. And so, uh, I, I, I mean, I, I went to um, a, I don't know what, what you call it, it was a symposium or something, um, the top 100 women in business or something, I think it was called a couple of years ago. And uh, I was on one of the panels, actually with um, Sally Penny, who is an amazing barrister, um, who I interviewed on uh, a podcast for International Women's Day a couple of days ago. And I was saying to her on that podcast, that one of the things that really struck me so deeply was that there were all these women there with DBEs and you know, I mean, very pillars of society, but there was virtually no feminine amongst a lot of them. But they had got to where they were, which was very elevated by expressing uh, masculine traits. Uh, and there's no criticism in that. It's because we have a, an incredibly masculine-oriented and designed uh, environment um and uh what what i will really took away from that more than anything else was that the new as of today duke of edinburgh's wife sophie uh prince edward's um wife gave the keynote speech and she's the only person all day who mentioned the word love mm. And I, I, it, I, it just actually, I, I wrote to her secretary, and I think I've got her speech somewhere, um, because it, it just so touched me, uh, and uh, you know, some people have said, well, she had the privilege because of her position. But I don't think it's anything to do with that. She was, a, she was a very successful businesswoman before she married Edward, and. Uh, has continued a lot of her work, but actually, as we we spoke earlier, with humility, she's a, she's a she's a really lovely shining example, uh, <clears throat> in my experience, um, of the, the the feminine. And it, 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 one of the things that really surprises me, um, and I, I'm sure you may be able to give me examples of where that's different, but <clears throat> what. What surprises me is that if, if, if there are women setting up their own organizations, why are they designing them in the same way as all their male predecessors? You know, why aren't there women setting up organizations that are, are oriented around school runs and taking menstruation and menopause and uh, all the things that actually are so rich in our society, but which men have don't want anything to do with and have forced women to largely deny or feel ashamed of we wow. need new 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 organizations <clears throat> I, I mean i i'm tenuously optimistic about the number of changes that are coming around i see organizations that are really pushing for um for example uh, reinstituting come back to the office, which at least is 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 hardship because you know people now don't want to come. But if you want that to happen, then you need to rethink who you are and why people are going to get out of bed, get in bloody commuter, sit through traffic, and come to work. You really have to revisit the why, <clears throat> the purpose of coming to work. You've got the four day week, and people, of course, promoting greater productivity in that. And, uh, and then you've got all the different environments and people are realizing, well, if I'm going to make people come to work, they better 
have a very different environment. And, and if you have a sufficient empathy within the boardroom, you'll think about flex hours to accommodate dropping off kids or picking them up and uh, whatever that comes like in France, it would be, you know, take Wednesday afternoons off, <laughs> for example, mm. because that's when you know, mm. the, the school's close. Tom, it's been a fun <clears throat> journey chatting with you. Uh, we, we had in the middle a, a kerfuffle with electricity and Zoom, but we made it. Uh, Tom, how can somebody follow you, hire you? What are the best ways to connect into you, your writing, and your business? Mm, thank you. Um, well, my email is tom, T-H-O-M, at serenityinleadership.com. Um, I'm on LinkedIn um, as Tom Dennis, T-H-O-M-D-E-N-N-I-S. Um, <clears throat> and I'm, you know, Serenity and Leadership has got its own uh, Twitter and Instagram and, and so on. They're, they're slightly more active than, than my own. Um, and uh, I, I post a lot of the articles and stuff that I do on, on LinkedIn. And I, I'd love people to interact. I'd love people to, you know, I've been talking a lot about men and how men can take responsibility for some of the things that go on in the workplace, particularly around harassment and and um, the unkind way that um, so many people are being treated. Um, and I'd love to ha have more interaction um, uh, around that. Let's 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 talk about it. The trouble is with men; men don't want to talk about things. They want to do it. They want to do things. So <laughs> I don't know how that translates, but you know maybe doing is picking up the phone and phoning me and and saying you know and, and my phone's on on linkedin and the connection things <clears throat> um i i i'd really like to talk to to leaders who want to bring about change and they're not sure how to do it that's uh that's uh it and i've just created a retreat which i'm very excited about and i'd love people to come and come and attend that it's called leading through the void and uh, there's a website leadingthroughthevoid.com which talks all about it which uh, we've just put up and that's in september and it's going to be in guatemala and i'd love some really exciting people particularly mavericks that we've been talking about to come and explore themselves in an amazing beautiful place healing to me tom um so uh, you heard it please go and visit or email or inter interact with tom uh, about uh, bringing about change where you're working uh, Tom, thanks very much for being on the show. Minter, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It's been great, in spite of all the things that went wrong. <laughs> thanks for having listened to this episode of the Minter Dialogue podcast. If you like the show and would like to support me, please consider a donation on patreon.com forward slash Dial. You can also subscribe on your favorite podcast service. And as ever, Rating and reviews are the real currency for podcasts. You'll find the show notes with over 2,000 and more blog posts on MinterDial.com. Check out my documentary film and four books, including my last one, You Lead, How Being Yourself Makes You a Better Leader. And to finish, here's a song I wrote with Stephanie Singer, A Convinced Man. Innate, a convinced
about LinkedIn, Indeed, Google, and just about every other recruitment tech company out there? Hell yeah. I'm Chad. I'm Cheese. We're the Chad and Cheese Podcast. All the latest recruiting news and insights are on our show. Dripping in snark and attitude. Subscribe today wherever you listen to your podcasts. We We out. out.